So we're doing the back half of Isaiah. And to really kind of wrap your mind around what's going on here, I need to start, with, start today with a story. Because what we're doing is we're looking at what this ancient prophet has to say to the instability and insecurity, the, the anger and the fear and uncertainty that so many are dealing with today. And this picks up in Isaiah 39. You can follow along if you'd like. If you're doing our faith training, you've seen this. But I want to hone in here and listen to what it says. At that time, Merodach Baladin, son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his, that's Hezekiah's, illness in recovery. It's an underrated name, wouldn't you agree, Merodach Baladin? I hear it's going to be all the rage for boys in 2021. (laughs) So here we have this king, and a nation that we really haven't heard of much yet in the narrative called Babylon. And he sends his son, the crown prince, Merodach Baladin, to the current reigning king in Jerusalem, a man named Hezekiah. And it says that he sends him in those days. At that time, well, in what days and what time? Well, certainly the time of Hezekiah, but maybe something more specific than that. In a time when Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem nearly lost their lunch. They just escaped death by a hair. The Assyrians, the the, the big nasty superpower on the block, has just overtaken all of Israel. It says that all the towns of Judea have fallen, and all that's left is Hezekiah, holed up like a bird in a cage, in the final city of the kingdom of God called Jerusalem. And Assyria is taunting him, mocking him, mocking Yahweh, trying to get him to see that there is no hope except to bend the knee and pay tribute and homage and put faith in the power of Assyria. And Hezekiah, Hezekiah is panicked. He is afraid. The people are panicked. They're afraid. The instability, the insecurity of what's going on and what stands against you. And so what do you do? He starts to look for help. Because when the big nasty on the block is coming to threaten you, what do you do? You try to enlist other help. Envoys are going out looking for alliances to Egypt, to Babylon, to anyone who might bail us out. And Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, arrives And you could almost imagine the smile on Hezekiah's face. Listen to what the story says. Hezekiah received these Babylonian envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, showing off the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, everything found in his treasury. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. 
than Isaiah the prophet. He went to the king, Hezekiah, and asked, what do those men say? And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Can you almost like see the eagerness of like this little boy bouncing up and down, kind of showing off, and you're like, I think I've made a mistake. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh Almighty. Look at what it says. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day, all of it is going to be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Nothing, says Yahweh. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, they're going to be taken away. And they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What's strange to me is Hezekiah's response. The word of Yahweh, you have spoken as good, he says. For he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. How so excited? How self-focused. I wonder how Hezekiah's tune would have changed if he was to become a eunuch in the house of Babylon. What does Isaiah say? From Babylon you sought help. To Babylon you'll go. See, from the beginning, God has been warning the people of Israel not to put their trust in others. Not in other gods, not in other nations, not even in themselves, but instead to trust Yahweh. And he's been warning them since the time of Moses the consequences of what it would mean for them if they sought their hope, salvation, stability, and security in anything or anyone other than Yahweh. Let's go all the way back 700 years earlier to the time of Moses to hear how deep this warning goes. Look at what it says at the end of Deuteronomy. Let me read this to you. If you put your trust in these others, then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Among these nations, you will find no peace, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There Yahweh will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both day and night, never sure of your life, in the morning you will say, if only it were evening. And in the evening, if only it were morning. 
because the terror that will fill your hearts and the, and the sights that your eyes will see. God has been warning them from the beginning over and over again. I think my favorite way that this is put is found in Leviticus. Actually, look at how God says it here. He goes, you must keep my decrees, my laws. The native born and the alien living among you must not do any of these detestable things for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you in the land. It became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Can I ask you, have you ever felt like you had to throw up? Have you ever thrown up? It's okay to admit here at Fellowship of Faith that you throw up. (laughs) This is a church that welcomes vomit. And as a vomiter, there is always a place for you in God's community. I've thrown up. I'm not too proud to admit it. We have a rule in my house. Dad throws up outside. It's just a rule for me. See, Tina, she throws up. You never know what happened. She's sitting on the couch. She just gets up. Oh, okay, she's going in the other room. Three minutes later, she comes back and sits down and goes, I just threw up. You would never know. You would never know before or after that this was churning. But when dad throws up, it's an event. It's usually preceded by 15 minutes of groaning and heaving that echoes throughout the house. And at six foot three, can I just say that I am not that near the toilet? So the blast radius tends to be something apocalyptic in nature. And so there's a rule in our house dad throws up outside. It's raining, dad throws up outside. It's January. Dad throws up outside. It's 20 below zero and he has the flu. Go outside. Right? I wish I had some video to demonstrate this morning what I mean. Instead, what I'm going to have to settle for are three barf stories. Three that I'd like to share with you this morning. The first is the incident of Easter, 1985. It was Easter and I was 11 years old. And if there's one incontrovertible truth in this world, it's that 11-year-old boys eat gross crap. We were going to my Aunt Bonnie's in the afternoon for Easter dinner together. The whole family would gather like a lot of us do, right? But we had some time to kill. It wasn't quite enough time to go home because in those days we were driving still into Chicago to go to church. It was about a half hour the wrong way. And we weren't going to go home, but we had some time to kill before we went to Aunt Bonnie's that afternoon. So let's go grab something to eat. There was this family restaurant, this Greek family restaurant that my stepdad loved to go to. So church got done. We piled in the car. We went out to sit down to eat and I opened the menu before me and there it gleamed. Never seen it before my eyes. Two words, pizza, burger. Now when you're an 11-year-old boy, there was no greater combination in this world than pizza and burger. 
It's amazing what 11-year-old boys eat, right? It's like they won't eat anything. But, you know, find some slop on the slaughterhouse floor and compact it together in gelatinous cube and call it a hot dog or chicken nugget. Mmm, fill me up, right? But anything good, forget it. And I saw this on the menu, and I had to partake. It comes out, this half-pound burger, of course, with fries on the side. It's got the marinara. It's got the mozzarella. It's smashed in the butt. It's disgusting. But to an 11-year-old boy, heaven on earth. And oh, how I savored the pizza burger that day. Lunch came. Lunch went, but not yet in that way. We piled back in the car. We went up to Antonis. And you ever have that moment where it's like a switch goes off inside you? You can't describe it, but instantaneously, you can pinpoint to a moment, oh. Right, right, you've had this feeling? Just, it, it's, Oh. You're laughing and you're talking with friends and suddenly, oh. And you know something is going down here today. We get out of the car. We're sitting at Bonnie's. I go sit in the other room. People are laughing. People are talking. You're smelling ham. Wafed through the house, which normally is the most amazing smell in the world. Would you agree? Except when you're having an oh moment. And you have that that conversation with yourself, that battle, if you will. Is this going to happen? Isn't this going to happen? Can I stave it off? Can I get around it? Can I put it, can I hold it long enough that this is going to fix itself? And the longer you wait, the more it escalates and you realize you are battling with powers here that are beyond your ability. Fortunately, no one was in the bathroom at the moment If I remember correctly, it was a carpeted bathroom. And what's important to the story is to visualize that there was a toilet here, but her central heating and air vent was right here. And let's just say that the pizza burger wanted to see the light of day. I wasn't six foot three back then but my aim was still terrible. And if you ever have that moment in the aftermath, especially in someone else's house, going, how am I going to escape this? How am I going to get out of this situation so nobody thinks it's me? I'm desperately unrolling toilet paper and clogging, I'm sure, her septic tank for six months to come, loading it up, trying to figure out how to get around the horror of what was met in her heating grate on a chilly early Easter that day. What's the rule in the house? Dad vomits outside. It set a precedent in the life of Dave. Barf story number two. I call it Bad Brat meets the carnival. Tina and I had been married about a year, maybe two. You got to understand the context of what was going on. We didn't have much money. We were living in St. Louis. And so you look for cheap, easy, and free things to do. We were driving around. You know how churches, 
especially in the older days, would often have these pop-up cardinals. Catholic churches have like, man, they cornered the market on this. There's this Catholic church that we found in St. Louis, and it had closed down the block and brought like one of those like death trap carnival inns. You know what I mean, right? Like, oh my gosh, this looks like so much fun. We pull the car over, we go on, and we hadn't eaten that day, and you smell all the fair food that's cooking, and I love a good brat. How about you? And they got the brat stand right there. No health department, mind you, but... And I get one, not one, I think I get two that day. And Tina is ready to hit the rides. Now, till the time I was about 10, I was terrified to go on most things. By the time I hit 12, I would go on everything. But by the time I hit 16, I realized spinning in the same pattern for five minutes just wasn't going to work anymore. And by the time I hit 22, 23, most rides had to be put behind me. But you see, Tina grew up in a small town in Indiana. And every year, they would bring in this street fair, this carnival. And by the, the, the weird cosmic twists of fate, she never happened to have a boyfriend at the time that street fair would hit and grew up with this longing, if only I could go on the rides with this boy that I liked. Well, here we were, married one year. The carnival has been laid out before us from the Lord on high. And there is the most god-awful, disgusting, spinning ride a human being could ever conceive. And men, you know that look. You know that look that you get, that your wife gives you. And you know that against all better judgment, against any bit of wisdom that you hold, you've got to do what she wants in that time, right? We hopped on the ride. It was one of these contraptions that goes like this with little pods going like that within it, with cars within those pods going like that, over and over again on a big elliptical thing going like this while it went. I mean, it's purely designed to torture. We get on the ride and we get 10 seconds in. Hey, I think I'm going to be okay. 20 seconds in, I think I'm going to be okay. 30 seconds in, I think I'm going to be okay. And then the 60 second minute, 60 second mark hit. And do you ever have that moment where you go, oh? And I just had it flash across my mind in a moment of panic. You got to get off this ride. I remember praying, I literally, dear God, dear God, get me off this ride. You know, it's become fashionable today for people to debate the existence of hell, even for theologians to debate the existence of hell. I became fully convinced that day that hell exists. And to make matters worse, there weren't that many people at the carnival anymore. So the carny guy operating the ride, thinking he's being nice, is giving us overtime. And it's going, and it's going, and it's rising, and it's rising. And I'm having this moment going, I cannot throw up on this ride. I mean, can you imagine? Can you literally imagine riding this ride? You're some couple in the back, and you're just, what hit me in the face? I cannot throw up on this ride. Two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, it just won't end. Finally, the ride, it starts coming down. Dear God, thank you. 
It comes out, Tina leans in to kiss me. I have never bolted so fast in my life for the woods just on the outside of the ride. What is the rule with dad? Get out of the house. There's no barfing on the ride. Why? Because nobody wants to clean that up. Let me fast forward to barf story number three. Because you haven't had enough yet, have you? The year is 2007. Fellowship of Faith. Men's bathroom. Bad fish. There used to be a restaurant down in 31. It was called Dunhills. You remember it? Love Dunhills. I loved it. And I like fish. We don't eat it much at home because, well, Tina doesn't like it. Well, that says everything. So, they had this, like, fish special of the day. Yeah, I know why it was special for the day. And like a lot of things that turn your stomach, it went down tasting so good. Have you noticed that? I came back from lunch. It was an hour and a half later. I was sitting in my office, and of course, we had the moment I'm more seasoned in my life this time, more mature, so I know it's coming my way. I'm not an 11-year-old boy in Aunt Bonnie's thing anymore. I'm not a 22-year-old newly married person on a carnival ride anymore. I know where this is taking me. I know the limits of my power. I also know that my brother's the custodian at the time. (laughs) And I'm never going to hear the end of what would happen if Dave were to meet the Fellowship of Faith bathroom with Dunhill's Fish that day. That was a bad one. For the next 40 minutes, I found myself parked behind our HVAC unit, right out this wall. Mowers, thank you for taking care of that grass, by the way. Because what's the rule? Dad doesn't throw up in the house. Now think about it. Think about it. Where is this going? Why do we throw up. Because there is something so toxic within us that if it were to remain, it would poison us. It would destroy us. It has to be expelled. Why is dad not allowed in the house? Because there is something within him that if it comes out, It will not just be a mess for dad, but it will affect everyone living in the house, smelling what's cooking in the grate, seeing what's clinging to the walls, wading through the filth. I'm really trying to get you to throw up today, you know? (laughs) When you throw up, it has to go out there. You don't want it here. Now look at what Isaiah has to say about the condition of Israel in Hezekiah's day. All the tables are covered with vomit, and there is not a spot without filth. 
Israel has embraced such toxicity, has reveled so much in their sin and trust of others rather than Yahweh, that metaphorically, Isaiah says, your vomit is everywhere. This filth, this sin, it's everywhere. It's polluting everything. All your tables are covered with vomit. And there is not a spot without filth. It has to be expelled out there. God had been warning them. Keep reveling in this filth. And there's not going to be a place for you in my presence, in this home that I've made for you anymore. There's no throwing up inside. I think of what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, but tepid. I wish that you were hot or cold, but as it is, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Hot coffee is great, isn't it? Iced coffee is great, isn't it? Mm, But nothing beats a nice 74 degree cup, would you agree? Ice cold milk is wonderful, isn't it? Hot steamed milk think a latte or hot chocolate is delicious, isn't it? But nothing beats an 84-degree glass of milk on a warm summer day. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, he says, because your tables are covered with vomit. There's not a spot without filth. I'm reminded of a family I knew. What a son. And it was going from bad to worse. By middle school, he was getting in trouble daily. Getting away with everything he could. Pushing every button, playing the system, failing every class. Not because he wasn't intelligent. Just because he didn't care. And no one was going to tell him what to do. Certainly not a teacher and certainly not a parent. And it seemed to win the admiration of those who had no good in mind for his future. It progressed in high school to dropping the friends over here and finding a home with that crowd. Language going worse, attitude going worse, mind going worse, soul going worse being caught with alcohol on occasion then regularly, smelling of pot occasionally then regularly, and then bringing it into the home, bringing his underage girlfriend home, doing who knows what, skipping school, dropping out of school, sleeping till noon, No job, no life, no future. You have no parents in a situation like that? Have you ever been parents in a situation like that? 
You're my son. I love you. I would die for you. I would go to hell for you. And yet every ounce of mercy and grace, encouragement and support I show you turns sour in the stomach and becomes something more toxic. Like it's doing nothing but enabling you and this family finally being forced to say, you can no longer live in this house. There was a woman I knew whose husband was an alcoholic. And it was bad. For years, she tolerated it. Tried to walk alongside, tried to be there for him. Tried to be the one person who didn't finally get fed up and give up on him. To to give him the support and the encouragement and it only was taken advantage of. It went beyond embarrassment and social situations. It went beyond job loss after job loss after job loss. DUIs. Court costs. Dealing just with the embarrassment as a wife. The precious little money that did remain being squandered at bars and on bottles and on lawyers. Coming home plastered every night. Waking up everyone in the house. Mommy, what's wrong with daddy? How many times can you hear it? coming in, wetting the bed, being forced to sleep in the tub because he would fill that too, covered in vomit. How long do you give grace? How long do you show mercy? How long do you put up with it before you realize that what I'm doing is only making matters worse? That the days finally come that I can't tolerate it anymore for my own sake but for the sake of everyone else living here for your sake because it's like I'm just enabling you you have to change or leave this house I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The tables are covered with vomit and the land is riddled with filth and for 700 years, Yahweh had been warning Israel of trusting others and all that that would bring. I'm about to kick you out. Is it because he didn't love them? No. No, just like those parents loved their son, just like that woman continued to love her husband. But what I'm doing is enabling you. You have to face the consequence. Otherwise, this will never change and you'll become more mired in your filth and sin. To Babylon you seek, to Babylon you will go. How bad did it get that even Hezekiah, who is considered one of the few good kings of Judah, would say something like this. 
well. What the Lord has spoken is good because at least it won't happen in my lifetime. Even the good are covered with filth. This wife, this family, they knew they had to kick them out with the hopes, not that their lives would be destroyed, but the opposite, that somehow they would come to their senses. That by hitting rock bottom, they would realize something has to change, to use the biblical term, that they would repent. That they would turn and realize the filth of their way and the effect it was having and come back to God and said, God, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, he said. Not because he didn't love them. But you can't live in this home anymore. To Babylon you will go. I want to talk to you a little bit about this concept of house and home. Because would you agree there's a different connotation? There's a lot of houses but just because there's a house, it doesn't make it home. Would you agree? You can own a house, but just because you own a house, it doesn't mean it's home. You can live in a house for years or decades, but just because you live there for a certain period of time, it doesn't make it home. No, no, home has a different connotation, would you agree? There's something different about house versus home. I wanna to share to you, with you today, this little write-up I came across by an Old Testament scholar and writer named Reed Lessing. And by the way, Reed Lessing. Listen to what he says. Home. The very word invokes feelings of love and laughter, security and warmth, belonging and welcome. Isaiah preached in the 8th century while Israel was still in the promised land, but partway through his ministry, the northern kingdom fell and Isaiah foresaw that Judah would go into exile later. Deported Israel was all too familiar with the feeling of exile. As they once sang, who can sing the song of Yahweh while in a foreign land? Zion was a fading memory. Stuck in a land of canals and ziggurats. The Tigris and Euphrates, Marduk and the Ishtar Gate. No king, no temple, no land, no liturgy, no sacrifice, no hope, no future, no home. Silent were the lyrics. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Yahweh of armies. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Instead, their captors mocked their prisoners of war. Sing for us one of your songs of Zion. Welcome to the Hotel Babylonia. You can check out anytime you'd like, but you can never leave. Far from home and worse, far from the Father. As Yahweh's firstborn son, Israel demanded her share of the inheritance and squandered it on wild living. 
Baal, Asherah, the Assyrian astral deities, perverting justice and righteousness, heartless worship, false faith. Finally, Jerusalem destroyed. The people sent into exile. The day the music died. Some of us live far from home. All of us live far from father. We live in exiles of our own making. But Yahweh speaks to sinners in exile. The message of Isaiah is Yahweh speaking to sinners in exile. He says, in joy you will go forth, and in shalom you will be carried along. The mountains and hills will burst forth before you with shouts of joy, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The climax of Isaiah 40 to 55 is Yahweh's promise to bring his exiles home. To bring his exiles home in shalom. He goes on. Everything that is so wrong will be made right. That is shalom. When Israel returns, Yahweh will renew everything. Shalom is why the mountains are singing, the trees are clapping their hands, and the hills are alive with the sound of music. Through God's Jesus program, we are going home. And now that you know the story, listen to the words of an 8th century prophet speaking to a people in a time of instability, insecurity, anger, and panic. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling, in the desert prepare a way for Yahweh, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and mankind together will see it, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. The sovereign Yahweh comes with power and his arm rules for him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh? My cause is disregarded by God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is everlasting. The creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary 
and increases the power of the weak. Even young men grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But to those whose hope is Yahweh, he will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. To you who live in instability, insecurity, fear and anger and panic. The everlasting Yahweh invites you as he invited them to put your trust in him and discover the real hope against whatever it is that he alone can save. Band, I want to invite you to come up. And I want you to pray with me. And embrace the message of an 8th century prophet still speaking to world today. We've showed you this prayer. Hopefully it's starting to breed familiarity. What is it? It's a heart cry. Yahweh, you I will trust. In you I find my hope. In you I plant my feet. You are where my future is.